While our children are uh, heading out for Children's Church, the rest of you will want to get out your uh, sermon outline. It says the confrontation of Christ on it. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. And uh, so turn there with me, starting at verse 26. If you remember from last week, those that were here, we saw Jesus heal the blind man. And this continues that story. John 9, verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to a fascinating part of your word, continuing the story of Jesus healing the blind man. We pray that you would open our eyes this morning that we might see and believe and worship. And we ask that you would do this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the story of Helen Keller? Most of you? Okay. Since childhood, Helen Keller had uh, grown up blind, deaf, and unable to speak. And yet through the patient work of one dedicated person, Helen Keller was able to make a meaningful contribution to the world through her writing, her teaching, and her inspirational example. And in her autobiography, The Story of My Life, which was made into the famous play The Miracle Worker, Helen Keller records endless days of anticipation and despair, waiting for someone to draw her out. Listen to her description of March 3rd. 1887. It was the day she first met the person who would do just that, her lifelong friend and teacher, Ann Sullivan. She writes, Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog, 
when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in. And the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore with compass and sounding line, and you waited with beating heart for something to happen. I was like that ship before my education began, only I was without compass or sounding line, and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me in that very hour. I felt approaching footsteps. I stretched out my hand as I supposed it to be my mother. Someone took it, and I was caught up and held close in the arms of her who had come to reveal all things to me, and more than all else, to love me. She goes on in her autobiography to describe the dramatic moment that came months later when Ann Sullivan first broke through her dark, silent world with the illumination of language. Again, she writes, we walked down the path to the well house. Remember, this is 1887. Attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered, someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other hand, water, first slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt a misty consciousness as of something long forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant that wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. There were barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could in time be swept away. I learned a great many new words that day. I do not remember what they all were, but I do know that mother, father, sister, and teacher were among them, words that were to make the world blossom for me. It would have been difficult to find a happier child than I as I lay down at the close of that eventful day and lived over the joys that it had brought me and for the first time longed for another day to come. I read that and I thought, certainly, this is how the blind man must have felt in John 9 when he washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam and he saw water for the first time. We finished last week with the blind man's testimony back in verse 25. And he said, One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Countless Christians throughout the ages have applied those same words to their own transformation, their own experience of that move from darkness to light. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And today we see in the second half of John 9 the blind man's reactions and responses to this great miracle and to this great miracle worker. We start with the confrontation he faces from the Pharisees because they demand answers. They demand answers. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. First of all, we see once again the Pharisees begin questioning this man. They ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, the blind man recognizes that the Pharisees' questioning is a sham. He's seen through their pious facade. He understood they're really not interested in finding out what happened, but they're merely trying to gather evidence to use against Jesus. He recognized they're not trying to find out the truth, but they're trying to prepare their case. And it's all further evidence of their refusal to believe, refusal to believe what happened to the blind man and refusal to believe in the one who healed the blind man. So he lets him know that they're wasting their time trying to get him to implicate Jesus as if the healing were some sort of crime. He says, verse 27, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? And with a show of innocence, he asks, if their desire to hear a repetition of his testimony is bound up with a secret desire to become disciples of Jesus themselves. But he knows as well as them, becoming a disciple of Jesus is the last thing they want. But still, they question him and he has to answer. And the first thing we see is the answer is based on experience. His answer is based on experience. They claim to be disciples of Moses, forgetting that back in John chapter 5, Jesus has already told them, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But they continue to deny Christ, proving they're not even true disciples of Moses. And they deny Christ by saying, verse 29, we do not know where he comes from, sort of dismissing him. And the man answers them, verse 30, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. And he isn't going to let the Pharisees forget the main issue here. He was blind, but now he sees. He's amazed twice. First, he's amazed and astonished by what's happened to him. You can't deny his experience. Now he sees. But he's also amazed at the unbelief of the Pharisees. In essence, he's telling them, you can't even recognize that Jesus has been sent from God and even when he's doing these miraculous signs right in front of you, how can you fail to receive with open arms someone able to open blind eyes? The answer is based on experience. I was blind, now I see. But also his answer is based on knowledge. Based on knowledge. We see this man, though blind, knew the scripture. He continues on, verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Apparently, this blind man knew his Old Testament. He knew his scriptures, his Hebrew Bible. He's quoting to these religious leaders truths from the word of God. 
And what he says is found in so many different passages in the Old Testament, they had to recognize what he was talking about. I, I looked him up, and there was, uh, you know, dozens. And uh, there are way too many to list, but here's a few of them that I picked out. Proverbs 15, 29. Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 1, 15. This is the Lord speaking. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Later, Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. And then two from the book of Job. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? And then surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. That's just a few of dozens of passages about how God hears the righteous and disregards the unrighteous. And that had to be salt in the wounds of the Pharisees to hear this man proclaiming truth. He knew, and they did too, and as we should as well, that prayer is directly related to godly character, obedience, knowledge of God's will as it's found in Scripture. As we just heard, the Scriptures amply attest to the relationship between the righteousness of the one praying and the attentiveness of God. We find the same principle in the New Testament, James Chapter 5, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Friends, do your prayers constantly seem to go unanswered? If that's the case, you've got to ask, how's your walk with Christ? Are you committed to regular time in God's word so that you may, as the Apostle Peter says, uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When confronted by this type of situation in the Gospel of John, where there's a clear difference between those who believe and those who don't, you have to ask yourself, is there any difference in my life? Can anyone else see that difference? I mean, is your life being uh, transformed day by day, a little at a time, through God's Word, as the Holy Spirit applies it to your heart? If not, then you need to come before God in prayer and confession, seeking, as David did in Psalm 51, a clean heart and a right spirit. Now, to this man who's formerly blind, the conclusion's obvious. He says, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, even the Pharisee Nicodemus recognized that exact same thing all the way back in John 3. He said, Rabbi, talking to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And when he said that, Jesus hadn't done very many signs yet. But now we're in John 9. He's done all sorts of things. He's fed the 5,000 and walked down the water and healed a whole bunch of people, and now a blind man sees. And as in the case of 
Nicodemus in John 3 or even the woman at the well in John 4, we watch the progress of this man growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. All the supposed might of the religious leadership couldn't scare him. All the petty arguments of the Pharisees can't shake him. He knew that Jesus had come from God, otherwise he could do nothing. And the man's going to stand on that fact. And likewise, Jesus tells us himself, coming in uh, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the Apostle John is driving home an important lesson for both Christians and those on the verge of accepting Christ. Opposition from the authorities is to be expected. We get really upset about that today. Somebody at some level of government or authority, you know, doesn't say something nice about Christians. Yet it seems biblically that we shouldn't be surprised. It's always been that way. And such opposition is best met with courageous truth and with transparent openness to the revelation of Christ. And there are certainly consequences for that, and there are consequences here for this man. Look at verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us as if anyone wasn't born in utter sin? And they cast him out. They throw him out of the temple. The consequences, the results of breaking with tradition and leaving the status quo in order to follow Christ is ultimately mature and knowledgeable faith. And yet that's not an easy transition. I think when they cast him out, that must have broke his heart. And yet we see he doesn't back down, and his answer is not just based on experience and not just based on knowledge, but its answer is based, I think, somewhat on gratitude. Notice the end of the sentence, verse 27. He said, do you also want to become his disciples? The New Living Translation has that verse, do you want to become his disciples too? And what he's saying is something to the effect of, do you want to become one of his disciples like I've become? The man's taken sides. He's letting the Pharisees know that if being healed by Jesus means following Jesus, count him in. He could see that either loyalty or a denial is being forced on him, and his gratitude precludes any possibility of denial. He would remain with Jesus. Because we now see, like him, that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. They demanded an answer, but they couldn't see the answer because Jesus is the answer. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
The Pharisees didn't want to be with a man whom they thought was a sinner. And so they threw him out of the temple. He probably hadn't been allowed in the temple previously as a blind man. And then he gets his sight and he can enter the temple. Day one, they throw him out. Because of the boldness of his words, they declare him a sinner and cast him out. But Jesus is the one who seeks sinners out. He says that, Matthew 9, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus, knowing that this man has been kicked out of God's house for having a testimony of truth, seeks him out. And so we see that he is found by the Lord. He's found by the Lord. Jesus comes to him so that he can learn that the miracle was not the most important thing. It's actually a secondary thing. He must learn to walk this new life by faith, not by sight. That's pretty tough to tell someone who's just started seeing. You know, you follow Jesus by faith not by sight. He just got his sight. That's all he wants to do is follow by sight. But Jesus asks him a critical, key, important question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's the all-important question that needs to be raised with each one of us, no matter what our station in life. Sometime in your life, you have to face up to this question do you believe in the Son of Man? This man had been scrupulously obedient, yet Jesus asked him the question, do you believe? Because obedience alone doesn't save us. The man did what Jesus told him to do, but now Jesus wants him to understand it's an issue of faith. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without faith, your works of obedience don't count for much. The man had passed through a remarkable experience. And yet Jesus asked him the question, do you believe? Because a remarkable experience in and of itself doesn't save us. The man was blind. Now he sees. He's ecstatic, but sight doesn't save. And Jesus doesn't want you to get so caught up in your feelings and experiences that they become more important than your faith. This man had spoken out courageously, and he suffered for Christ because of it. And yet Jesus asked him the question, do you believe? Because courage in the face of persecution doesn't save us. The man stood up to the Pharisees, was thrown out of the temple. But Jesus doesn't want you to think that courage is the only requirement. Because courage without faith can become pointless. The man exercised faith in the Lord to a small degree. And yet Jesus asked him the question, do you believe? He told the Pharisees back in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But Jesus wants you to be absolutely sure who you believe in because your faith shouldn't remain small or vague, but should grow and become certain as you continue to walk with the Lord. And the question from our Lord must be raised in every age for everyone so that each of us can examine our own hearts and see if we really do believe. Is our faith reflected in our life, in our actions, in our words? Do you love God, or do you just say that you love God? Do you love his word, or do you just make that claim? Do you love his people, or do you just claim that, you know, it's a good bunch of folks, I see them Sunday morning? 
Do you delight in his worship or are you just punching your ticket? I did the Sunday morning thing. Now I can go do what I want. Claiming to have faith in Christ will be to no avail if Christ has not claimed you as one of his own. Jesus asked him and us, do you believe? In this man's case, we see he has faith in the Lord. He has faith. The man boldly answers the Lord's question with a plea. Verse 36, he says, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? No longer confident in tradition and religious authority. The man seeks the truth, the real answer. He thirsts for living water. And Jesus fills him with faith. He tells the man, verse 37, You have seen him. That must have been thrilling words for a blind man to hear. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I mean, if nothing else, this man knew the voice of Jesus. Never in all his life would he forget the voice that told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And now he's able to see the man behind the voice. And with the power of sight given to him by Jesus, he beholds the light of the world, the living water. He sees Christ face to face, and he bows down and worships him. At least I think he does. It says he worships him. Verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. I mean, look at the response of this brand new believer. First thing he says, Lord, he places himself in humble submission to Christ. Second, he says, I believe. Answering this great question, he places his trust fully in Christ. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And here, this man does exactly that. And third, he changes his focus. He takes the focus off of himself and looks to Christ as his Lord and Savior. His immediate response is to worship Christ. You know, most of the time I say, you don't always have to follow the example of the various characters in the Bible because eventually they all screw up. But this is probably a good man to follow the example of. Place yourself in humble submission to the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, responding in simple faith to that question, do you believe? Change your focus, take your eyes off yourself, look to Christ as Lord and Savior. I mean, watch this man. We can see the progression in John 9 as he comes to an understanding of faith. All the way back in verse 11, he said, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. He hasn't a clue who Jesus is or where Jesus comes from. He just knows that Jesus healed him. And at that point, he hadn't seen him since. He hadn't seen him ever. Then verse 17, now he's being interrogated, and he says, they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet, knowing that a prophet would be sent from God. So he says, this man comes from God. And then finally down in verse 35, Jesus asks him, does he believe in the Son of Man? He says, well, show me where he is. And Jesus says, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one. I'm standing right next to you, right before you. And he believes and he worships. And your response to Christ, especially as we gather together in this place and at this time, should be to worship him. That's what you came for, not to see your friends, 
Not even to hear a good sermon, although that's a good thing. And not because we have cool music, and that's a good thing too. And not because we have all sorts of great Sunday school classes, that's a good thing. You walk through the door to worship. The question at the end of the service is not what did I get out of it, but how did I do? Did I worship Jesus as my Lord and Savior this morning? However, there's one other example here that we have to learn from. And that's the example of the Pharisees. Because they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't fear the Lord. Whenever people are confronted by Christ, there's a dividing line drawn. Some say, yes, I believe, and they'll see. While others will say, no, I don't believe. And without even realizing it, they'll remain blind. And Jesus wants this man to understand what's just happened here in John 9. This miracle that opened his eyes and the conflict that followed is actually an acted out parable about sight and blindness and the spiritual realm. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. We've just seen that acted out. And you can be like this man, a new believer, and see. Or you can be like the Pharisees who do not believe, who are blind. Though they claim not to be blind, they challenged Jesus. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Implying to Jesus they could see just fine. Thank you very much. Even though they're utterly blind spiritually. And Jesus tells them, verse 41, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. I can't think of a much sadder verse in the Bible than to be told by the Lord Jesus Christ, your guilt remains. They refuse to admit their sinful state. They refuse to confess. They refuse to ask for forgiveness. And therefore, they're not forgiven. Jesus will say in John 15, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Folks, we're about to come to the Lord's table. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But before we do, as we always do, we're going to have some words to say about admitting your sinful state and confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness. And don't make the mistake of the Pharisees and refuse to confess your sin and repent and ask forgiveness and come to Christ. This table draws a dividing line as well. And it's a I believe or I don't believe statement. Because Jesus is calling us, just like the blind man, to forgiveness and to faith. Experience, knowledge, and gratitude are not enough. What Christ desires most of all is our faith. So this morning, he's asking you, do you believe? See, the story ends with those who thought they could see being set in their blindness. 
And the one who is blind has his eyes opened to understand and appreciate who Jesus is. You have to get this. It's a picture of the gospel. This is how the gospel works. It's interesting. There's no mention of the man's name here. We're not told his name. There's other healings of blind people. We get the guy's name, but not here. And you think the Apostle John might have slipped the man's name in there? You know, maybe it was Peter or Joe or whatever, probably David. There's a lot of them, so I'm told. But we don't know. John never tells us. Perhaps John is saying to us, look, I don't want to tell you his name. Slip your own name in there. This is everyone's name. This is your name. This is my name. We need the touch of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to see. And when our eyes are opened, what is it that we see? Do you believe? Do you see Jesus? You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to think that we've got it all together. We know all the right answers. We come to worship, we do the right stuff, and we say the right stuff. And it'd be nice to think that we're the blind man and we've had our eyes open, but sometimes we're the Pharisees. And we already think that we know the answer. So, Lord, sometimes we're blind. We're blind people. We're focused on ourselves and not on Jesus. Oh, Lord, this morning, particularly as we come to your table to receive your grace, open the eyes of our hearts that we may know you, that we may see Jesus this morning. Lord, that is our prayer. Open our eyes. Help us blind people to see you this morning. We ask that you would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.